What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. When it comes to Saudi Arabia and sports, all eyes are on the merger deal between the PGA Tour, DP World Tour, and Live Golf, especially with tour officials testifying before a U.S. Senate committee on Tuesday about the merger. But in the background, talks about a Saudi Arabian investment in professional tennis are brewing. And given the business models of the ATP and WTA, one that is similar to golf and sees many players in the professional ranks financially struggling to survive. An injection of Saudi billions could be a welcomed investment. So today's podcast will examine why professional tennis is likely of interest to the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund and why the sport's economics make it a prime target for financial disruption. Let's get right into it. Okay, so Saudi Arabia's interest in global sports has been widely publicized at this point. The country's state-controlled oil company, Aramco, produces more than 10 million barrels of crude oil per day, reporting a profit of $161 billion last year alone. To give you some context on just how much that is, that's $441 million in profit every single day that Aramco made last year, or $316,000 in profit every single minute of the entire year. It was the highest ever recorded annual profit by a publicly listed company in history. But with concerns about the future of fossil fuels, the country has been trying to diversify its economy and soften its image to the Western world. This has led Saudi's sovereign wealth fund, the Public Investment Fund, PIF, to invest billions in sports. A few examples are, they purchased Newcastle United in the Premier League for $408 million. They agreed to a 10-year, $1 billion deal with the WWE that guarantees at least two events each year will be held in Saudi. They signed a 10-year deal with Formula One worth $650 million, which guarantees them the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix every single year. And their state-owned oil company, Aramco, the company we were just talking about, also signed a 10-year deal with Formula One worth $450 million. That's a sponsorship. Saudi Arabia has also paid $150 million to host high-profile boxing events, fights with Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz, etc., Francis Ngannou, Tyson Fury, all those, right? They also acquired ESL Gaming, one of the largest independent esports entities in the world, for $1.05 billion. They then bought Faceit, one of the biggest tournament organizers in esports, for $500 million, and they merged the two groups, and it's now called ESL Faceit Group. So you guys get the point. They have spent billions and billions and billions. And this does not even count the $20 billion bid that they tried to buy from the one for it. They literally went to Liberty Media reportedly, I think Bloomberg was the first one to report it, and tried to buy the sport of Formula One, the entire sport, for $20 billion. Liberty Media and Formula One said no at the time. And look, everyone knows what's going on with golf. But now that golf is in this weird place where there is uh, a merger happening, they're being questioned by government officials and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, there's a paper signed that Saudi has committed at least $3 billion to a merger between Live Golf, the DP World Tour, and the PGA Tour. But now, while that's going on, it looks like Saudi Arabia has its sights set on a new sport, tennis. ATP chairman Andrea Gozzani said in June 2023 that ATP has had, and I quote, positive discussions with Saudi Arabia and other potential partners about investing in the organization. Now, look. He did make it very clear during his quote that he wants to keep the ATP's infrastructure in place, how they currently run all their tournaments. And he wants new investors to work with the current powers that be in tennis, not to create a new tour. Here's the exact quote that he told the Financial Times. He said, 
There are many ways to become an investor of the ecosystem. It's not only about creating a new tour or buying a tournament. You have to preserve something, which is almost sacred, the rules of the game. This is not a video game. This is not a movie. But with PJ Tour officials testifying before a U.S. Senate committee last Tuesday about their $3 billion commercial partnership deal with Saudi's private investment fund, it's clear that Saudi Arabia is looking to refocus its efforts on another sport. And there are more similarities between golf and tennis than most people probably realize. In golf, for example, the athletes are independent contractors. They pay for their own flights, hotels, meals, and coaches. And they only make money if they play well in a tournament. There is no fixed salary or guaranteed payouts. And many players actually end up losing money when they don't play their best and miss the cut at a tournament. One of the best examples of this is probably Rory McIlroy. Let's use him. He takes a private jet with his family and friends to Augusta National every year to play in the Masters. Obviously, one of the biggest tournaments of the year. He flies there private with his family and friends. He then rents two houses. He rents a house for his family and a house for his staff, right? His coaches, people like that. And he spends thousands of dollars that one week alone on a swing coach and a psychologist. So he's spending a lot of money. But Rory missed the cut at the Masters this past year. So he made just $10,000. And that's an important number because at a normal tournament, you don't get paid anything when you miss the cut. This is one of the things in full swing that people made fun of when Netflix came out with their show. Every episode, it felt like they explained that when you don't make the cut, you don't get any money. And that's true for 99% of the tournaments. But the Masters is unique in the fact that they do give people that don't make the cut $10,000. So Rory left that tournament with $10,000 as his payout. And it's a nice consolation prize, but obviously at a typical tournament, it would be zero. Still, that means Rory McIlroy probably spent more than $150,000 that week alone. If you're counting the houses, nice houses in Augusta for the week go for $50,000. He got two of them. That's 100K right there. I don't know how much his flight costs to and from. Say it costs another 50K. That's 150K without counting anything else, right? If we want to count coaches, if we want to count food, whatever, you know, like everything all in, he probably spent more than $150,000 for that week, and he left with 10K. And you could argue that Rory is one of the biggest draws. He is one of the biggest draws in golf right now, and certainly at the Masters. His presence alone gets people out. They get to go to the tournament. They want to go see him. They ask for his autograph, the kids. You get the point. He is a huge draw for the sport of golf, and he certainly deserves more than $10,000 when he goes to a tournament. But he didn't play well. He missed the cut. He got $10,000 and ended up losing, you know, potentially more than $150,000 on that week alone. Now look, you shouldn't feel bad for Rory, of course. He has a $200 million endorsement deal with Nike, and he has already made $10 million this year alone on on on-course prize money. But you can see why this structure would be problematic for lower-ranked players who don't have $200 million Nike contracts, yet spend thousands on travel and training just to leave tournaments empty-handed when they don't play well. And this is one of those things that like, this is exactly why, this is precisely why Liv was able to challenge the PGA Tour. Everyone always talks about their bottomless pit of cash. And of course, that is the anchor. That is what they necessarily needed to challenge the tour. They they came armed with that bottomless pit of cash. But the league's unique structure, their fixed schedule, their large shiny bonus, some of them upwards of $100 million, their $25 million purses that guaranteed payouts per tournament. This flipped the PGA Tour's independent contractor model on its head, right? So like, obviously the big name players, they're going for a guaranteed check. But guys like Phil, Dustin Johnson, you know, like all these guys, 
they know that they're worth more than showing up to a tournament and not getting paid unless they play well. So that was where Liv was able to come in. It's an outrageous contract. No one's arguing that. The money was, was not real in some sense, but Saudi was offering it and these players went and took it. But this same model can be applied to the highest levels of professional tennis. Remember, all tennis players, everyone from freaking world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, to world 1500 are self-employed, every single one of them, meaning they have to pay for their own travel expenses and their coaches, just like golfers. And look, this is a significant problem for anyone outside the top 100 rankings. For example, there's a guy named Noah Rubin. Uh, CNN, I think it was, did a profile on him and a bunch of other tennis players a few years back. And they broke down basically how much some of these tennis players are getting. And Noah Rubin is a good example because his parents raised him to essentially be a professional tennis player. They say they spent over $400,000 on training for him while he was growing up to be a professional tennis player. Now, he ended up, uh, when this thing was published, he was 195th in the world ranking. So, you know, just inside the top 200. And he was playing full-time. This was his full-time job. He was trying to make it on the ATP tour. So, they say that his prize money for 2019, he earned about $200,000 in prize money. He played in a bunch of tournaments, traveled full schedule, full thing, $200,000 he made in prize money. He made another $30,000 in sponsorship money. His sponsor was a K-Swiss for clothing and head for rack. So call it $230,000 he made in earnings. How much do you think he took home after expenses that year? That year. In 2019, Noah Rubin says that he took home $60,000 after expenses, right? Take home pay, netting coaches, netting travel, you know, whatever it was. After expenses, he says he made $60,000 as the 195th ranked player in the world. So top 200 player here we're talking about. This guy essentially made no money. He could have got an entry-level job at, you know, a variety of different industries, and he potentially could have been making more than $60,000 his first year on the job, right? So this was a situation where that's not even counting the $400,000 that his parents spent through his youth career to help him reach the professional level. And that's a top 200 player. When you venture even further out, and we're talking about, you know, like 1,000 or top 1,500 players in the world, there's another example that I believe it was the Colt Tennis YouTube channel used. And it was someone named Abraham Asaba. So Abraham Asaba is actually now within like the top 500 or 600 on the different tour rankings. But at the time, Abraham was ranked 1700th in 2019, the same time that this article came out. Abraham had a full-time job, right? So tennis was part-time. They had a full-time job in New York City at a hedge fund with a salary, entry-level salary of $61,000. The reason Abraham picked this job was because the hedge fund was allowing them to be flexible with his vacation days to travel to different tournaments. And Abraham walks you through essentially like what they were spending, what you know they were spending on a typical tournament. So round-trip flights, $700. Food average was $239 per tournament. Hotel, $429. Entry fee for the tournament, $40. So total expenses, if you add all those up, $1,400 Abraham was spending, give or take, every tournament that he went and played it. Now, these tournaments have a few caveats to them. The player, uh, in this case, Abraham, was always flying coach. Abraham typically shared a room with another player that was playing in the tournament. Abraham was eating as cheap of food as he could, you know, cheap or fast food. And sometimes Abraham was given housing by the tournament if it is organized by basically like a tennis community or something like that. But that's not always common through these lower, lower ranked tournaments. So Abraham, at the end of the year, basically said that he lost money. <laughs> he lost money. 
throughout the year, when you add up all of his expenses and the winnings, he actually only won between singles and doubles tournaments. He won just over $2,000 as the 1700 ranked player in the world that year. He won $2,200. And when you add in all of his expenses, he lost over $20,000 as one of the lower ranked players in the world. So look, this is obviously an extreme example, but you get my point. Anywhere from, you know, the top 100 outside of that, you're not making great money in tennis. It's a really tough sport. The expenses are high. You're independent contractor, so you're basically eating what you kill. And it's a really tough sport to make a living in unless you're one of the top, you know, 20, 50, 60, 70 players in the world. And this is also the same reason why the world's best tennis players typically earn much more off the court via sponsors than they do on the court via prize money. If you just look at the top 10 highest paid tennis players from Forbes last year, you guys have seen these lists. They come out with them every single year. Roger Federer was the highest paid player last year. He made $90 million last year. How much of that came on the court? Zero, literally zero money on the court. He didn't make any money on the court. All $90 million came off the court via endorsements. Now look, Roger Federer is a global brand. He might be an outlier, but let's go down the list. Naomi Osaka. She made $56.2 million last year. 55 of the 56.2 was off the court. Serena Williams made $35.1 million last year. 35 of the 35.1 was off the court. Rafael Nadal, he made $31.4 million last year. 25 of the 31.4 was off the court. Novak Djokovic, he won $27.1 million last year. 20 million of the 27 came off the court. And it goes down the list, right? Like it just keeps going. Venus Williams, Carlos Alcaraz, Daniel Medvedev, like all of them are making more money off the court than they are on the court. And that's why tennis seems like the next likeliest target for Saudi Arabia. It's a global sport between the ATP and the WTA. They say they have an audience of 1.7 billion people globally. Regardless, if you want to believe that, I don't know how they're counting that, but you get the point. There's more than a billion tennis fans worldwide, people that like tennis, et cetera, play it. The governing bodies also have a significant money problem. If you want to just use the PGA Tour as an example, like we did earlier, the PGA Tour brings in $1.5 billion in annual revenue. That's six times more annual revenue than the ATP Tour, which brings in $250 million. So again, the PGA Tour brings in $1.5 billion, and the ATP Tour brings in $250 million. Tennis, I think, has seven different governing bodies. We're talking about, you know, the men's and the women's. All of the, the Grand Slams are separate, right? So Wimbledon, the French Open, Australian, U.S. Open, they're all separate, right? So there's seven governing bodies, I think, in tennis. So it's all kind of split up. But the ATP Tour brings in $250 million annually compared to $1.5 billion for the PGA Tour. And Saudi Arabia, they already have a vested interest in tennis. They just signed a five-year deal to host the next-gen ATP Finals starting next year. So if you just look at the two tours from an overview perspective, the ATP tour has a global tournament footprint in 30 different countries. They have a global audience, they say, of 1 billion people. They have 2,000 players or more. Uh, the WTA is very similar. They're in 30 different countries. They have a global audience of 700 million and 1,600 players at a time. And I think the important thing to remember here is that the world's best players have already said that they're okay with it. Men's world number one, and obviously the newest Wimbledon champion, Carlos Alcaraz, and women's number one, Iga Swatek, have already said that they would be willing to play future tournaments in Saudi Arabia. And Nick Kyrgios, I don't know who saw this, but he tweeted out his support for Saudi Arabia investing in the ATP tour earlier this year. He said in all caps on Twitter, finally, they see the value. We are going to get paid what we deserve to get paid. Sign me up. 
And then he included 10 different money bag emojis at the end. So my point is simple, right? Some of the world's best players have already said they're not going to be boycotting tournaments. They're going to show up. They're okay to play in Saudi Arabia if that's what it takes to get the investment into the ATP tour. Now, look, I don't want to minimize some of the bigger cultural issues that are going on here. I've written about this a bunch. I've podcasted about it a bunch. I've tweeted about it. You guys know how I feel about this stuff right now. Some of this is definitely 1,000% sports washing. 1,000%. It's cleaning up the image is exactly what I said earlier about them trying to soften their image to the Western world. And the most obvious example of this is like Saudi Arabia was never planning on making back the billions of dollars they spent on live golf. And many of their other sports investments are too small for them to seriously claim it's financial diversification, right? Like if you're investing that much money, whether it goes well or not, the amount of money that you're going to have to make back from that sports investment is not enough to seriously have people consider that it's a diversification of your economy. So there's a few different ways to look at this. What Saudi has done is they go and they pick a target, golf, for instance. And if you can't join a team or a league, they go to the PGA Tour and the PGA earlier, right, years ago, would have said, probably did say to them, we are not interested. We don't want your money. We don't want to be in bed with you guys, yada, yada, yada. Now, look, there's some nuance around this. There, you know, There's been tournaments. There's been sponsors of the PGA Tour, stuff like that. But if Saudis came to them and said, we want to own half the PGA Tour, the PGA Tour would have and, and probably did say no. But what Saudi has been able to do in their strategy, it seems like, is that they are willing to poach some of the best athletes in that given sport. So we're talking about Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, right? The best players in the world with unmatchable contracts, just money that is just, you know, outrageous. People can't even believe it. And then they're going to bring you to court, right? They're just going to exhaust you with litigation when it comes to the PGA Tour. They're claiming they're a monopoly. They were doing illegal things to stop Live Golf from succeeding. And what happens? You don't have a choice in some instances, like the PGA Tour says they didn't, where they had to settle. And then what happens when you settle? They get a seat at the table, right? And now they're in this weird world where they are a part owner of the PGA Tour's commercial interest, right? They're a partner in that business. And whether the PGA Tour wants to say it or not, oh, we have the chairman, we have the board votes, whatever. No, they provide the money. He who provides the money is king in this situation. And Saudi Arabia is a major player in golf by the strategy that they took. But again, I don't think that their goal is necessarily diversification, right? Like I've talked about this before. Oil is certainly a part of it. I do think that, right, they're trying to move some things around. They're investing in, in electric car companies, right? Like they're doing a bunch of different things that they're trying to become less reliant on fossil fuels. We've seen it in before. Saudi Arabia is so reliant on fossil fuels. I think it's over 40% of their total GDP on a given year. And it's 87% of their budget reserves and 90% of export earnings, right? So it is like, the whole thing that drives their entire economy. And the last time we saw like a major sharp decline in oil prices, I think it was in the early 1980s, they entered a deep, prolonged recession that took nearly three decades to recover from. So they're not trying to do that again. They understand the situation that they're in. They're making a crap ton of money on oil right now, but they want to move some things around. I think sports is probably a part of that. But to my point earlier, they're not planning on making money on some of this stuff. So I don't think that's their goal. Instead, what Saudi Arabia appears to want to do from this is personal opinion here, but it seems to be supported by fact is they want to turn their country into a tourist destination. Think of Dubai. They want to become Dubai. That's exactly what they want to do, right? That's why they got Cristiano Ronaldo to come here. That's why they're paying Lionel Messi tens of millions of dollars every single year through a tourism partnership agreement. That is what they want to do. And it's because they'll make significantly more money on that than anything else they do in sports, Right. $400 million for Newcastle United, drop in the bucket if you're able to turn yourself into Dubai. And 
That's what we've seen, right? Their Vision 2030 plan has specifically talked about this. Tourism, housing, et cetera. They want people to come and visit Saudi Arabia, feel comfortable there, and think that it is a really nice country. It's the same reason why Ronaldo's on TV, it seems like every single week, talking about how great of a time he's having in Saudi. That is part of their plan through sports. These athletes are global ambassadors that they're essentially paying for the sport for sure, but part of it is just a tourism deal. Lionel Messi has a specific tourism deal, but other athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo and other people like that, that they're paying hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially billions of dollars to, are essentially ambassadors for their country. And it's the exact reason why they're trying to invest in assets like Formula One, Newcastle United, the PGA Tour. It's why they're investing in companies like Uber, Disney, Facebook. And again, it's why they have these multi-million dollar tourism sponsorship deals with athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Saudi Arabia wants to soften its image and promote its country as a tourism destination. So we'll see if that happens. But regardless of whether Saudi Arabia's tourism numbers 10x or go to zero, they're going to keep investing in sports. That much is clear to me. And with the NBA recently relaxing its minority investment parameters, major sports leagues in the United States might be Next, we already saw Qatar has invested in the parent company of the Washington Wizards and other sports teams in and around Washington. My guess is that Saudi is next. They're seeing these uh, NBA teams trade for a significant amount of money. There are minority owners that invested millions of dollars in these teams and have them seen them gone up 10, 15x over the last decade, and they want liquidity. And who better to provide that than a sovereign wealth fund or an endowment or a pension fund? or a private equity fund that has access to billions of dollars of institutional capital and can get them out of their position relatively easily without even feeling a dent. So my point is simple, guys. I don't think this is going anywhere. I think Saudi is going to keep investing in sports. And tennis seems like a very logical choice. I've talked about this for months at this point. I always thought after golf, maybe like boxing or tennis would be next. Tennis, it appears, will be next. They're already talking to the ATP and other tours along those lines. So we'll see what happens. But I will keep you guys updated as always. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and we'll talk on Wednesday.